Jim Cott joins us on Sports Byline, former Major League pitcher who's been elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. He played 25 years in the Major Leagues with the Washington Senators, Minnesota, the White Sox, Phillies, Yankees, and St. Louis. And Cott pitched to both Ted Williams and Tony Gwynn, pitched in the Majors at 20 years old and at 44 years old, and his career spanned four decades. Jim has another book out, and it's called Good as Gold, My Eight Decades in Baseball, about his career and the roadblocks and triumphs he has had along the way. First of all, Jim, in addition to the four decades you played baseball, you also coached and have been a broadcaster. What makes you or what amazes you about what you've been able to do for such a long period of time? Well, I, I think uh, what is what amazes me is uh, the way I've been blessed by people that have helped me along the way. You know, they always seem to be there at the right time, whether it's resurrecting my playing career or getting good advice from a Dick Inberg and a John Madden and uh, getting a break to do uh, the Yankee games for so many years after Tony Kubek retired and recommended me for his job. And uh, things have just fallen into place so uh, so nicely. Uh, I, I don't think it's anything I can look back and say that I really earned or worked hard for. I just think I was in the game. I loved the game. And uh, I got breaks from a lot of good people along the way. Tell me about growing up in Zeeland, Michigan, and your early love for baseball. Well, my dad was an avid fan, and I like to say I fell in love with baseball on June 26, 1946. Uh, my dad took me to see a doubleheader in, uh, excuse me, in Detroit at Briggs Stadium. Uh, Red Sox and Tigers I saw Ted Williams, Bobby Doerr, Hank Greenberg, Hal Newhouser. They all became Hall of Famers. Uh, but when I walked up the ramp to find our seats and uh, saw that blanket of green grass and those whitest white uniforms I'd ever seen, I said, wow, that looks like something fun to be a part of. So that's uh, that's kind of where I fell in love with baseball. And, uh, you know, growing up in Zealand, I wish every kid could have had that, that opportunity. Uh, great little community. My dad was an avid baseball fan, got great support from the people in that town, and uh, I thank them for it. As a young kid uh, in Washington, D.C., where I grew up, I saw your first Major League game on August the 2nd, 1959, for the Washington Senators at Griffith Stadium. Now, I was a teenager. How would you describe Griffith Stadium? Well, Griffith Stadium was uh, deep in left field and famous for when Mickey Mantle hit the uh, home run 565 feet off Chuck Stobbs. But uh, when I broke in there with the Senators in 59, it was kind of desolate place because we were not a very good team. We weren't drawing a lot of fans. And uh, actually, it wasn't in the most desirable uh, part of town eventually. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I just pitched a few games there before we moved to Minnesota in 1961. So, uh, I know it was deep in center field. I know that opening day in 1960, I saw Ted Williams hit one through the wind, the longest home run I'd ever seen. But that was the only run uh, they got. And my teammate Camilo Pasquale uh, won the game that day and set a record which still stands. He struck out 15 men on opening day in 1960. The owner of that team was Clark Griffith. Tell me about him. Well, it was Calvin Griffith. Clark was his uh, uncle, I believe, that adopted right. Calvin. And uh, Calvin was uh, <clears throat> he, frugal would be a kind word, but <laughs> you know, 
he wasn't like uh, uh, owners today that baseball is just, oh, by the way, I've got a few billion dollars and I think I'll tinker around with a baseball team. Uh, in those days, a lot of the owners, that was their livelihood. And uh, Calvin treated it that way. And he was a very tough guy to uh, to get a raise from. Uh, but also, uh, I have to give him credit for one of the things he really believed in and developed is we had a great scouting system. And uh, we signed so many great Cuban players. Uh, we had a scout named Joe Cambria who, uh, you know, signed Camilo Pasquale, Pedro Ramos, and then along came Tony Oliva and Zoilo Versailles. And they, they were a big uh, reason why we, we – we had a good team in the sixties, but uh, Calvin was an owner general manager that uh, was tough to deal with. Yeah. uh, Calvin was like a lot of the owners at that time. Were they not? Yeah. I think you look at Tom Yawkey and, and uh, who owned the Red Sox. I I think that was uh, more the rule than the exception is that baseball was their livelihood. They uh, were not successful at a lot of other businesses. So, you know, the bottom line was a lot more, important to them. I think when we won the pennant in 1965, our total payroll was $625,000 and, uh, 620, yeah, 625,000. So, uh, you know, he kept his costs down and, uh, he had 19 members of his family on his payroll. So that kind of explains what a family business it was. What do you remember most about your major league debut? Well, I remember that I, I probably shouldn't have been there. Uh, I was pitching in Chattanooga, and uh, I had some good starts early in the year. I set a strikeout record, uh, striking out 19. I was uh, what you'd call a power pitcher, and then I injured my shoulder. We didn't know what it was, didn't have MRIs or anything. So uh, <clears throat> I was pitching on a, in a compromised state. And when I got the call into the manager's office, said, kid, you're going to the big leagues. And I said, well, do they know about my shoulder issue? He said, you know, you get up there and tell them about it. So uh, my first start against the White Sox, they, it didn't go very well, and they could uh, they could tell that I wasn't throwing the same. And uh, shortly after that, I had a little uh, cyst taken off my back in uh, Washington, D.C., and that was the thing that was holding me back. But my, uh, my debut was uh, not a sparkling moment in my career other than the fact that I was in the big leagues. I know the Washington Senators moved to Minnesota. They became the Twins. What was behind that move? Well, I think it was uh, it was the expansion. Uh, Calvin uh, had talked, I believe, uh, to people on the West Coast about moving Washington to uh, to L.A. But uh, Walter O'Malley uh, beat him to it, and uh, so we ended up becoming the Minnesota Twins. And I think it was just because. Expansion was on the way, and he had an opportunity to to move that team. We weren't drawing any people in Washington, and then of course an expansion team came in there uh, the same year that we moved uh, to Minnesota. You know, you were a three-time All Star, and I always like to ask an athlete who was really good at their sport as to, do you remember the moment that you knew you could play whatever thing at the professional level? What was it for you, Jim? Well, I think when I when I signed my contract in 1957 and went down to Superior, Nebraska at Class T ball, uh, I didn't have a particularly good season. I was five and six. I had some dominant games, but I also had a lot of games I got knocked around. And 
when you come out of your hometown as a youngster, you're probably, you know, you're not accustomed to losing. You win most everything. And uh, I, I had to deal with that. But I remember telling my dad, uh, the one thing I was concerned about was, was the competition from the big city boys going to be too fast for me? And I told him at the end of the year, you know, I didn't have a good year, but I, I felt comfortable with the competition. And I think that's what helped me every year to not be intimidated by the people I was pitching against and uh, kind of helped me to progress. We mentioned about Griffith Stadium, but at that particular time, I thought the stadiums were interesting. As you look around baseball when you were in your early years in the major leagues, tell me about some of the stadiums that you remember most. Well, of course, I remember Briggs Stadium because that's where my dad took me to my first games in uh, 1946. But uh, in Comiskey Park was a, uh, a favorite park of mine to pitch in uh, from a selfish standpoint because it was Hard to hit the ball out of the ballpark, and the White Sox didn't have a lot of power hitters. But, of course, Fenway stood out. You know, Fenway was unique. And then the uh, the history of Yankee Stadium, when, when you got there, you just looked around and, and thought about, you know, Babe Ruth playing there. I remember my first trip into Fenway Park. I ended up facing Ted Williams, but I walked out to that that monster they call the Green Monster, that wall, and I saw all those dents in the wall and me being a baseball fan from the time I was a kid, I was imagining Joe DiMaggio and Vern Stevens and Bobby Doerr and all the guys that put dents in that, in that wall. So (laughs) I really loved the history of the game and uh, there's no park that was uh, more steeped in history than Fenway park. Over in the national league, they had some interesting ballparks as well. I remember as a kid going both to games in Cincinnati and Pittsburgh and some of those outfields, uh, you had to take a cab to get to the wall. Yeah, and, and Cincinnati, of course, had that, uh, as their minor league team did in Nashville, That they had that that slope out in the outfield where uh, an outfielder would have to run uphill sometimes. Uh, yeah, and, and Wrigley was the, was the unique park. Uh, that was kind of the, uh, the match of Fenway Park in the American League. But, you know, in those days, there was only – so much territory to build a ballpark in and just kind of fit it in whichever way they could. That's what makes baseball unique is, uh, you know, you don't have the ball going uh, end to end like football or hockey or tennis or basketball, and you have the ball bouncing all over and you have different dimensions. And that's what's always made the game to me attractive and unique. I remember one time you never did officially retire from major league baseball. Is that still the case, Jim? Yes, always people would ask me, when did you retire? I said, I never really retired, but they uh, they took my glove and ball away in 1983, and uh, so I couldn't play anymore, so I went into coaching and then broadcasting. But, uh, uh, you know, I'm still active in it at 83. Uh, I don't like the game as much today, the game on the field. I love the game of baseball. I wish they could get back to, you know, playing it the way it was originally designed. But uh, I still enjoy being a part of it and uh, uh, crossing paths a lot with players that I played with and against, and uh, that's what keeps me interested in it. Well, you won a record 16 gold gloves uh, over a period of time, and you had the same glove for 15 years. Describe that glove to me, and what was it about it? Well, it was like an old pair of jeans or a sweater where you got to run out and you just throw something on because it's comfortable. And uh, 
I got the original Wilson A2000 in the mid-60s, and it, it just fit my hand so well. You know, we didn't, when you had a new glove, then it took you a couple weeks to break it in. You know, you'd put what we called neat's foot oil on it. You'd put a couple balls in the pocket, tie some strings around it, break it in. And and so right now I have it, uh, I think the Hall of Fame is going to display it there this summer, but uh, the wristband is all taped up with black friction tape. It's been restrung, the leather <laughs> strings, by a couple of trainers. It, it's got a hole in the middle of it. If I threw it on the street corner, some kid would pick it up and throw it in the trash can. But uh, it was comfortable to me, and uh, I used it for 15 years. There were two years that jump out at me in your long career. In 1962, you were the American League leader in shutouts with five. Tell me about that, and how hard was it at that time to shut out another team over nine innings? Well, it's always been hard. I, I kind of amazed myself that year. In fact, a, an interesting uh, trivia question was uh, Stu Nahan, who was a, a telecaster down in L.A. On one of my trips there, he said, who pitched the first shutout in, in Dodger Stadium? And, of course, the uh, uh, the Dodgers played at the old Coliseum before uh, Dodger Stadium was built. And uh, it wasn't Colfax or Drysdale, but I shut out the Angels there, and that was the uh, – the first shutout there but you know i was a new pitcher in the league uh i had a good live arm and uh you know i don't think the uh the lineups were as as strong top to bottom today you know everything is about hitting uh but then it was more of a pitching oriented game and uh you know i was fortunate to to get off to that good start in 1962 and uh, i think pitching uh shutouts the, the one of the keys to it is i learned from warren spahn uh, you know, you have to learn to be a different pitcher those last few innings when you face a Mickey Mantle for the fourth time as opposed to the first three. And with uh, help from pitching coaches like Eddie Lopat, uh, you know, I was able to develop that skill. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about how you approached uh, going up against the great hitters like a Ted Williams that you talked about, Mickey Mantle, other hitters on the New York Yankees. How did you approach uh, – uh, going after them to be as effective as you could against those great hitters? Well, I think in those days we weren't overwhelmed with scouting reports. We we more or less trusted our stuff. Um, you know, we knew like Mickey Mantle was a high ball hitter, right-handed, low ball, left-handed. We kind of knew the zones that hitters like. And I think the strike zones were a little more liberal uh, in those days. And so it, it wasn't as much as what the hitter's weakness was it was what was my style of pitching. You know, I had a moving fastball, and my my goal was to get a lot of ground balls out, ground ball out. So, I think pitching is basically still the same: high and tight, low and away. Get your secondary pitches over when you're behind in the count, and that's the key to being an effective pitcher. Your career had three 20-win seasons. That in itself is impressive. But I'm going to go to 1966. That was a magical year for you. You were the American leader. Uh, league leader in wins with 25, but this is the one that just jumps out at me. Complete games, 19. What was it about that season? What was it about your pitching in that particular season? I think it was a combination of pitching uh, well in low-scoring games and in games that I wasn't quite as sharp. My team scored a lot of runs. I, I have to tell you, I think I pitched just as well in 1971 and my record was 13 and 14. I think I had 14 or 15 complete games in. But everything broke right for me in that year. Uh, the big key was 
one of the big keys was when Johnny Sane became our pitching coach in 1965. Uh, he really helped me uh, kind of develop the art of pitching. And my confidence level was, was high, and my control was good, and everything just fell into place that year. Yeah, there's another aspect to pitching as well, and that's the guy that's behind the play catching you. You had a lot of catchers over your career. What made the good ones really good? Well, for different different times, different reasons. I had 38 different catchers, and uh, Earl Batty was my catcher in my early years in Minnesota. And Earl was uh, a veteran compared to me, and boy, he re- he had a very calm demeanor, and he was so helpful uh, in my development as a young pitcher. You know, as time went on, I pitched to uh, Phil Roof, who didn't who didn't play as a regular a lot, but he and I just clicked. I think when you when you look down at the catcher, and inside your mind, you're saying, you know, I know this guy's a good fastball hitter, but now seems to be the right time to throw him a fastball. And you'd look down at the catcher, and that's the signal you would get. So it's kind of that mind game where the pitcher and the catcher are on the same wavelength, and that's what makes it so smooth, and and there's no indecision in in the pitches that you're going to throw. Jim, as you know, left-handers have a reputation. You were a (laughs) left-hander. Tell me about lefties in baseball. Well, you know, I became good friends and still am with Bill Lee. He's one of the more eccentric right. lefties, uh, still <laughs> pitching actually for the Savannah Bananas, <laughs> age 75. Uh, Bo Belinsky was quite a character. Yeah, uh, us lefties always had a, a reputation for being a, a little different, and I think we've upheld that reputation pretty well. In, in some cases, it helps because uh, the stubbornness of, of left-handers sometimes help you helps you as a pitcher. Uh, we all have different motions compared to righties who have more, you know, the cookie cutter, the Tom Seaver drop and drive motion, but lefties were always a little quirky. And, and I think that's, I remember Harmon Killebrew telling me I'd rather hit against a hard throwing righty than one of these crafty lefties that's throwing these slow (laughs) curves and things like that. So I'm proud to be a lefty. (laughs) Yeah. Bill Rigney once told me a story down at spring training. I was sitting there watching a spring training game, and we were talking about Bo, and he said when he was managing the Angels and Bo was there and everybody knew his reputation, he was out on on, uh, the boulevards and the streets and late at night and everything. And so um, he had a a purple Cadillac. And so Rig called him in and said, Bo, you you really can't, you know, you're going to be known wherever you are because people are going to see your or purple Cadillac, you've got you've got to get rid of that thing. So a couple of days later, Bo comes in. He says, uh, "Hey, Rig, I, I sold the the Cadillac." He said, "Okay, what did you get?" He said, "I got a gold one." <laughs> yeah. Well, you know the famous the famous line with Bo Belinsky in the days before cell phones. Uh, I remember there was a lounge in Kansas City, the Pink Pony, and Bo would go yes. in, go to the payphone, and he would call, and the bartender he would ask the bartender. He said. Could you page, please page Bo Belinsky? And he'd hang up the phone, go sit at the bar, so everybody knew he was there. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about baseball that lends itself to such great stories over such a long period of time? Well, it's a long season to begin with, 162 games. It's probably better suited right now to play about 100, but uh, I think that's part of it. And, you know, when the game owned the summer, uh, it's, it's just such a part of American sports fabric. I mean, now the 
football, hockey, basketball, they, they leak over into the summer and they start earlier. So baseball uh, doesn't own it like they did. And, and of course they have some problems because, because of it. But I think as a young boy growing up in the forties and fifties, you know, baseball was the game. The other sports were not really that attractive from a professional standpoint. And uh, the history, you know, you don't, you don't talk a lot about what happened in football. You know, of course, it, it probably didn't exist uh, on the pro level back in the 30s or 40s, but we can go back even into the last century early on and talk baseball stories. You know, a lot of players uh, either hope to or have made the transition into broadcasting. It's not always an easy transition because uh, you all, you know the game really, really well, but to try to communicate it to the masses, the fans, is not always an easy transition. You have made that transition and been outstanding for such a long period of time. You've won Emmy Awards. 35 years behind that microphone. What made it so natural for you, Jim? Well, I, I think, you know, I took speech uh, classes in high school. I've never been, I've always been comfortable uh, communicating. And then I got good help. Dick Enberg, I did some games with Dick early on. Dick Stockton. Later on, I called the great John Madden. Uh, you know, I tried to approach broadcasting just like I did pitching. You know, I learned from uh, I learned from some good ones. One of my off-season jobs, because we did have to work in the off-season, my early days, is uh, I worked for a 500-watt daytime station, and Ray Scott used to critique my tapes of doing uh, high school basketball and football games and i'm sure he cringed listening to him but you know guys like that were were good advisors you know and like dick enberg would say now look you got eight seconds to get your thoughts to the microphone before the next pitch so little things like that that those old veteran uh, broadcasters helped me what about the commonality that all the truly great ones i think of vin scully others like that and in baseball there seems to be so many outstanding broadcasters casters what's the commonality that they all have well i think with vin and we had herb carneal in minnesota to me the the skill in broadcasting is the radio guys when you when you're doing 162 games and if i think of the late great by who did phillies games for years when they were losing 100 games you have to paint the picture and and uh you know that's a real skill i think from a former player as an analyst, as Jack Buck told me when he called me over one day and said, I heard you're going to get into broadcasting. And I said, well, I'm, I'm thinking about it. He said, well, don't ever tell him how easy it is. Just cash the checks and smile. <laughs> and, you know, as an analyst on TV, there's pictures there. So all you're really doing is like you and I sitting at a game, and I'm the one that played, so I'm trying to explain to you what's going on on the field. And that's not really hard. You just you just have to learn to do it in a concise manner, uh, and those are the guys that helped me do that. We only have about two minutes left, but uh, when you think back on your career, is there, and this is a tough question for you, especially with eight decades, is there a moment that's kind of seared into Jim Cott's mind that he'll never forget about the game and his career? Well, that moment would be uh, Game 7 of the 1982 World Series when Bruce Souter struck out the last hitter and uh, the St. Louis Cardinals became World Series winners. That was my 24th and final full season. And uh, it's not a record of accomplishment. It's kind of a record of so what trivia, but uh, that's the longest any professional player has played in any professional sport before getting a championship ring. So uh, 
I'm very indebted and thankful for the 1982 St. Louis Cardinals, and that, that would stand out as the highlight of my career. Jim, what means the most to you in your life overall when you think about it? Well, I, I think just being uh, healthy enough to, uh, you know, to, to exist as a player, and even now at age 83, I mean, I just think, uh, I think when Ray Charles sings that song and he comes to the line, God shed his grace on thee, I think, man, God has shed his grace on me. I didn't do anything to deserve this, but it's a great gift uh, that I've been able to, to have and hopefully treat it properly and uh, use it to my advantage. So I'm grateful for that. In about 30 seconds, uh, inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. What was that moment like for you? Well, when you get the call and the voice on the other end says, this is Jane Clark from the National Baseball Hall of Fame, you immediately know what it is, and your life changes in an instant for the good. Uh, Tony LaRussa had called me and told me that same thing. So these past now, I guess going on four months plus, have just been uh, so exciting and rewarding and uh, uh, looking forward to a lot of great times this summer with my friend and teammate, Tony Oliva. I want to thank you, Jim. We've known each other for a very long time. We've talked baseball for just as long, and uh, you've been very kind to me. Take care. You're welcome here on Sports Byline anytime. All right. Thank you, Ron. Again, Jim Cott, former Major League pitcher who's been elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame, and deservedly so, 25 years in the Major Leagues. We continue with more of you and America's sports talk show. 